you don't know what this thing's going to be. And every point along the way, it feels like it's going to stall out and that's as far as it's going to go. And it always feels that way. It's not like anybody told us when we launched that we'd get to XYZ scale or that there was any guarantee of that. Every step on that path, I thought it was going to be, you know, I didn't think we'd get any further. I just thought it would stall. There's a reason it's called performance marketing, and I didn't even realize it at the time. I don't know what to do other than every day do the thing that seems to make the most sense that day. The hardest thing is who's going to be the... Yeah, it's not miserable, but it's not fun. It's just sort of tedious like work is. Most work's tedious. Great to be here today. Jesse Horowitz, 30 years old, based in New York. Aren't you on vacay today? Yes, I am. Just a little bit outside the city, aiming out on the beach. Thank you for joining us on your vacation. Thanks for having me. So aren't you like a TV superstar? Don't you do actually the commercials for your company? <laughs> yeah, my co-founder, uh, Ben, and I, I'm the co-founder, co-CEO of Hubble Contacts. We do our own 15-second spots. When we were first thinking about TV, we talked with the TV buyers we were working with, a group called Katari, about what spots we should make. And we had all sorts of clever ideas. And they said, okay, they weren't the production company, but they were giving us guidance there. We can make those, but also you should do at least one founder spot, just straight to camera explaining what the offering is, because that's what's going to win. And we made four spots and we did a bake-off and lo and behold, they were right. So that's the one that runs. So the company name is, is it Hubble Contacts or just Hubble? Hubble Contacts. Okay. Yeah. So why don't you just explain a little bit more about your company then? Sure. Very simple offering. We're direct-to-consumer, daily disposable contact lens subscription. We've been live since 2016, primarily our own brand, Hubble, and also increasingly through other brands as well, but just trying to create convenient, affordable contact lens experiences for consumers so you don't run out and uh, you don't overwear your lenses. So I'm going to imagine that you have contacts? I certainly do. I wear contacts a lot in high school and college, and probably the last couple of years as primarily a glasses wearer, but we were going to do a contact lens company. I was going to make sure I wore the product every day, so I do. You're saying you have you and a co-founder, or just the two of you all started the company? Yep. We were friends from an internship several years ago, and then we lived across the street from each other for a while. And so how big is the company today? Several hundred thousand subscribers, continuing to grow, operating in 30 countries, Solid size and certainly a lot bigger than anything I thought we'd be able to pull off. Yeah, and how many employees? We're relatively lean on headcount. I think we're 20-something. Okay. Well, yeah, I guess that's pretty impressive for being in that many countries, right? Yeah. We think we learn a lot. I learn a lot from some of the bootstrapped, non-venture, direct-to-consumer brands out there and how lean they're able to keep things on headcount while operating pretty substantial businesses. And I think one of our responsibilities to the consumer. We're supposed to be finding opportunities for value for the consumer and figuring out how to run a tight ship so we can pass that onward is valuable. Did you end up growing up saying, hey, I want to make cheap contacts for other people and subscribe to them via the internet? It's funny. So, I mean, I started college as a film studies major, and then I graduated econ math, and then I did a year of law school, and then I was investment management for a while. I kind of just accepted that the thing I'm going to do next not only is it maybe not the thing I'm doing now, but it might even be something I'm not aware just did one step earlier. Don't know if I've gotten better about rolling with the punches, but hopefully at least a little bit more accepting. 
Yeah, because I'm looking at your profile and you went to Columbia for economics and mathematics, right? Yep. Yeah. But I was actually one course away from a film studies major and made the switch at the start of my junior year. I spent a semester interning on the set for Sony Pictures daytime judge shows, and I just saw how incredibly demanding work in film is, in film and TV. Honestly, more power to those folks. That was certainly intimidated away. When you're coming out of college, you weren't looking to be an entrepreneur or start your own company, it sounds like? When I was coming out of college, I was just looking for a job. I mean, it was 2010. It was not a great recruiting environment. And I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I decided to go to law school because I figured it would keep me in a sort of recruiting environment. And good options to have. I went to Harvard Law and I got an internship at Bridgewater Associates the summer after my 1L year. So you went to law school, not only law school, it looks like Harvard Law School. And I guess you were only there for a little while when you decided you didn't want to keep being a lawyer or on that potential path? I was pretty sure I didn't want to practice. Law school was actually fun. The folks were smart and interesting, but wasn't too excited about being a lawyer. And so after my 1L year, I was lucky I got an internship at Bridgewater and I just asked them whether I could stay on full time there. And that's what I ended up doing. So they accepted you and you just started making good money there for a while? Yeah, I probably liked law school more than Bridgewater, but Bridgewater was more aligned with what I wanted to be doing long term. Sort of funny, can't say I absolutely loved working there, but must say over time, I've developed a lot of respect for the organization because I keep doing things with ex-Bridgewater people. And there must obviously have some affinity for the folks who pass through their recruiting machine and think they're um, you know incredible community of folks. What did you learn from working from a big company that maybe we could also learn from your story there that we could apply to our businesses? I think if I were to fault Bridgewater on anything, they recruit, they have an amazing business. I think they like recruiting sort of startup-y profile people. And I always just wondered, like, is that really sort of the appropriate recruiting profile based on what their business is? And I think in general, one of my big takeaways from whatever little experience I have, just sort of try to be comfortable in your own skin as an organization. And, you know, lots of good businesses and good business opportunities out there. No reason to be embarrassed of the opportunity you're trying to go after and kind of no reason not to go after that as effectively as you can and to kind of try to strip away any sort of preconceptions of what your company should or shouldn't be. Just try to get the job done. And in general, in case anyone doesn't know what Bridgewater is, can you just explain a little bit more about it? Sure. Bridgewater is an asset manager. Their biggest product is a large global macro hedge fund. They probably trade, they probably manage somewhere north of $100 billion. And he's drawn 20 plus year track record and a lot of deep fundamental research that then gets applied systematically through their trades. So it's interesting that, again, kind of when you started school at Columbia, it was like economics, mathematics, then you go TV, film, and then you go to law school, and then you get kind of in the financial services. So yeah, it's kind of jumping around. You weren't scared to just wanting to stay in one field. You were still just trying to find what you liked. I was terrified the whole time. I mean, I totally thought I was messing it up. I still think I'm messing it up. But I don't know what to do other than every day do the thing that seems to make the most sense that day. Then that looks a little disorderly and messy. It kind of is what it is. No, I mean, I think it's important that maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, 
everyone had a trajectory where if they come out of college or get in a type of industry, they need to stay in there for like 20 years. And I think what we find out more and more if the entrepreneurs like I interview and get their story, I think we find even with the younger ones, especially is that it's okay to move around because you start learning different skill sets and it kind of opens your horizons on different things you can learn versus maybe if you would have just even stayed in TV and film right when you graduated. Yeah, I don't know what choice you have at this point. I mean, we were all graduating into the environment we were graduating into, and there just isn't a ton of job stability or security. And maybe there's positives around that, too. I don't want to be too much of a negative Nancy. (laughs) But in terms of at least people are maybe more understanding and accepting of resumes that have more movement around. But there's a lot that's scary about that. And it just kind of is what it is. And it's part of our responsibilities apparently now is in our careers, which may be to a degree that wasn't true before. Flipping the calendar creates endless possibilities. New and exciting opportunities are coming your way. You just have to be ready for them. And it all starts with earning your master's degree at Ashford University. A new year equals new opportunities. Make this year the year you advance your career by earning your master's degree. And you can get started today at Ashford University. So here's four reasons why you should choose Ashford University. Number one is convenient and flexible. See, Ashford University's online master's degree programs allow you to learn at your own pace. You can study wherever you're the most comfortable learning. And see, these online courses are available 24-7. So whether you're a night owl or an early bird, you can easily fit classes into your weekly routine. Number two, one course at a time. See, with Ashford University's six-week-long courses allow you to take one course at a time. Being enrolled in one class at Ashford means you are considered a full-time student. Three, easy enrollment. The GRE, GMAT, and other standardized test scores are not required for enrolling at Ashford University. And number four, accreditation. See, Ashford University is fully accredited by WASC Senior College and University Commission. So new opportunities are right around the corner. And now's that time to start earning your master's degree. Enroll now by going to ashford.edu slash millionaire. That's ashford.edu slash millionaire to start your master's degree today. One more time, ashford.edu slash millionaire. Do you remember when you started your small business? It was no small feat. It took a lot of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumbled receipts. Create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you'll always have the tools you need when you need them, without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. So join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it free for 30 days, no catch and no credit card required. Go to FreshBooks.com dot com forward slash mi and enter millionaire interviews and the how did you hear about us section to get started that's freshbooks.com forward slash mi and for more information about freshbooks you can go check out episode 141 where i interviewed the founder 
Mike McDermott. You're a few years younger than me, and I can agree with you. I think most people know people are graduating during those years. I mean, it was hard to find a job. You're going to do whatever you can to make some money and get your yeah. life or business role moving. It wasn't purposely done, or I think, again, anyone can understand that. So it sounded like you stayed in the kind of financial services for a few years, and then you started Hubble. I just, again, wanted to talk about your background a little bit, that it seemed like a little bit checkered. So if anyone's listening, you don't have to have the perfect path to starting a company. Yeah. I mean, I was at Bridgewater. Then I was trading for a year with a Bridgewater guy, very smart guy, big fan of his, but we got nowhere together and basically did that until I'd run through my savings. Not we didn't lose all the money trading, but I had living expenses the whole time. And then was lucky. I got a job with Columbia's endowment and I was over there for a few years and started poking around Hubble as a concept with Ben, my co-founder, who was over at Aries and already in the box subscriptions space and thinking about this kind of thing, you know, while I was at Columbia. So that's kind of the backstory of I guess before we started Hubble Contacts, you're there for a few years. And then why don't we jump into how Hubble Contacts actually got started? It was Ben's idea. And I just thought it was an interesting idea. So I did what I've done with several projects, which is the hardest thing is who's going to be the first person to get behind something you're working on. But I've always been kind of game to roll up my sleeves and help people with projects they're working on. And so I started kind of digging in and doing research around the concept with Ben nights and weekends. And we sort of set for ourselves as a milestone. We said, okay, to do this full time, we need some sort of institutional support, whether that was an accelerator or some seed capital. And we're willing to, we're game to put in a few months of work, really try to understand the category and the concept, and then see if that sort of demand on the financing side was there or not. And that's kind of what we ended up doing. There was more fundraising demand than we were expecting, and we were fortunate there and raised a strong seed. Then we were kind of off to the races. You mean the first person to kind of roll up their sleeves and get going? Do you mean you having to quit your job too and go kind of full-time into this? No, I just mean, this was just nights and weekends stuff still, but it's just for a lot of people, it can be easier to kind of get over that hump if it's their own idea because all the ego around that. I've generally found a shortage of people who are willing to kind of do the grunt work with somebody else on their idea. That can be a good way to find interesting opportunities because there's lots of things to be done in the world and doesn't terribly matter much whether it's your idea or somebody else's at the end of the day. But usually, if it's not their idea, a lot of the times people will want some of those validators in place already, whether that's capital or other hires or certain marketing demand demonstrations, and that you can have a lot of impact on a project by just being like, sure, whatever, how, you know, how precious are a few weekends? Let me dig in and at least I'll learn something. What did you end up doing to validate this actual idea? Because at least it sounds like your background, maybe at like the financial analyst kind of role or understanding that that might have helped significantly as far as seeing if this was a worthy idea. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was diligencing manufacturers and sort of coming through databases on that kind of stuff. If you don't mind, because it seems like you have a better background in this, if I just dig more in the details. So are you just Googling about these manufacturers that you can get this idea and that it's valuable? Or can you just give us a little bit more details of this due diligence? In this case, contact lenses are FDA-approved category, so you can just come through the approvals to get a sense of the manufacturer landscape. But you could do the same thing in lots of other categories. People will do the same thing with Alibaba or Tmall. You go through, you start seeing who's selling through Alibaba, 
and you can work backwards that way to manufacturers. You can go to trade shows and try to get senses of these ecosystems that way. But it's sort of just grunt work. There's nothing magical about it, but it's important. You got to get it right. That's sort of the work that's hard to get folks to sign up for that really can move the needle in the early days. At the end of the day, what stops people from being dreamers and actually doers is actually doing something. I mean, it's not necessarily, maybe it's fun for you, or but usually it's not really that much fun at first to do that. Yeah, it's not miserable, but it's not fun. It's just sort of tedious like work is. Most work's tedious. Right. And I always describe it like the guy who goes to the gym, right? Yeah. How did he get to that point? Well, he had to go to the gym early on when he wasn't that big. It just takes time and you have to put in the work to get to where you want to go. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, the exact work involved is different. But before Hubble, I'd gone through the same sort of exercise with friends on probably three or four other projects. And so even that, you get more confident in how to dig into these things and you just get more bites at the apple. And a lot of it is just sort of low-grade tedious and you kind of just grind through it. And yeah, you keep referencing Ben, your co-founder. So it's Ben Kogan, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you and Ben are kind of doing this work. So just walk us through the timeline about how long it took you to figure out, hey, Ben, it does make good financial sense. I think we can move forward and maybe we need to take the next step. Sure. Ben started looking at this probably like late 2015. I probably got involved right around the start of 2016. I don't know. It's probably like four months of research and tests and yada, yada. And then we went out to fundraise early April and it was just very well received. And so that part, we were lucky. It wasn't terribly painful, but I'd say, okay, four months of work, not that bad a trade, but you figure you tack on that was probably another, at least two or three times that on other projects. And like, it's hardly a sacrifice, but it's, it's a decent chunk of free time to give up to find an interesting project. So when you're going to try to raise money, what are you pitching them on? Can you give us your pitch of why Hubble Contacts was a good idea? Yeah, it was good timing because Ben came from Harry's and Harry's was doing very well. Harry's Razors? Yeah, Harry's Razors. So Harry's was doing well. It was sort of a natural subscription category, recurring revenue, really matched up with the need for consumers. And so there was a lot that just kind of made sense about it. But I think, honestly, it was as much timing as anything else, which is it was the summer that Harry's launched in Target and Dollar Shave Club sold to Unilever. And so investors were very interested in that kind of business. But when you went to these investors, were you all just going to be able to sell these contacts way cheaper? Is that the idea or what else as far as like, yeah, again, what you'd pitch them on? I think in terms of what's driving all this, it's Facebook and Instagram. And just the same way that 1-800-CONTACTS is a great business and grew up on search, you need a new wave of businesses that are well optimized to this new source of ad inventory. And that's ultimately to the benefit of the consumer because the consumer wants Facebook and Instagram as ad-supported products that are non-subscription and free. And so then advertisers have to figure out valuable things to do with that ad inventory. And so there's kind of two layers of value for the consumer then. One layer is the direct thing, which is you're building valuable services. And then because you're building valuable services, you're helping create an advertiser ecosystem that can support this free ad-supported service that consumers seem to enjoy spending their time with. What was your pitch and what was your value as far as you able to get consumers? Yeah, so we were a value-driven brand, attractive packaging, attractive branding. But I think more fundamentally, because you've seen a wave of these companies, we're all filling the same need in consumers' lives. And it's a bigger need, 
which is you had search and then you had a bunch of new advertisers spring up to sort of fill out the search landscape. So, you know, 1-800-CONTACTS in our category. You had Amazon and you've had a bunch of sellers mature to kind of fill out the Amazon graph. And you've needed a similar sort of ecosystem for Facebook and Instagram. And I think that's what all these direct brands are in that they're valuable to the consumer in multiple ways. They're valuable to the extent that the consumer is finding value in our goods and services, which is why they're buying. And then on top of that, by finding valuable things to do with Facebook and Instagram ad inventory, we're creating the revenue that allows these to work as ad-supported services without subscription fee. So you're able to really grow this brand through Facebook and Instagram, you're saying, versus maybe the older ones were doing it through Google search? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I guess I never even realized that until you even brought that up. That I didn't think about that. It seems like a lot of brands have been grown up on this. So basically, you knew you'd be able to figure out how to get cheap ads on Facebook and Instagram, and that would drive your customer base? You got it. Wow. But even your background kind of wasn't in that, was it? No, not at all. I mean, Ben's background was more there. There's a reason it's called performance marketing, and I didn't even realize it at the time, but it lines up well with sort of an investment background because there's a lot of data and analytics in a lot of the same sort of exercises as you'd see on the investment side. How long did it take you to quit your job and go full in on to Hubble Contacts? Once we raised our seed, that was kind of the delineation point. So we raised our seed in May. I think I moved full-time June or July. And at that point, I guess you were about 27, 28? Yeah, I was about 27, 28. Okay. And y'all had just been friends before? Because I'm wondering how y'all coming together, if there was ever an issue with that, because sometimes we hear about co-founder issues and whatnot. No, no, that was easy. I mean, we'd been friends for five or six years already at that point. And we, but it was a coincidence we lived across the street, but we were good friends. So we saw each other a lot since we were neighbors too. And how much money did you raise? Three and a half. Okay. Three and a half dollars or three and a half million? Sorry, three and a half million. I was joking. I'm not very funny. <laughs> but okay. So with that, did you feel like on top of the world? Because I want to get a feeling of your emotions too, because it seemed like yeah, you'd be killing it. Yeah, I was shocked that that worked. I just kept the whole experience has been this feeling of like surprise at what we've accomplished and terror that will mess it up. And that's kind of that none of that's really changed. None of that's really changed from the seat. How about personally? Again, if I'm jumping back to that point, as far as like relationships where any of y'all married or have kids? Yeah, I am married, but I was married already. Ben had a long time, is a very long time girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we were both sort of in serious long-term relationships. And as far as work lifestyle, how many hours were you working? The pre-launch period isn't that bad because you're not moving product yet. Once we launched in November 16, it was a lot. But I'd say even more, I've worked a lot of hours the last few years. I'd say even more than that, it's just I have trouble sort of turning it off. And I've never been great at that, but even more so with this experience. And so that doesn't always make me the easiest to deal with. Well, in the beginning, when it was just you two, can you go over some of the hard things that you had to deal with? Because it sounds like so far, everything's been on the up and up, really. There were more of us at the start. We had my best friend, Paul, was our CTO at that point. Ben's best friend, Dan, was running creative for us. We had other folks around us. Mark, my husband, was helping out. My mom was doing our legal work. We had a good little crew. Yeah, it's been a very fortunate ride so far. If I go through it, maybe this says something more about me than about Hubble. If I go through it, it's felt like a roller coaster and lots of points of feeling sort of strung out along the way. But no, it's been a great experience. Can we talk about some of the roller coaster down points? Because again, I don't want everyone to think it was a fairy tale story and everything's been perfect so far. 
most of the roller coaster stuff, it goes back to a performance marketing organization, which is like, hopefully your revenue graph is going up and to the right and your burn graph falls off a cliff at the start, but is then going up and to the right. And those are sort of longer term trends. There's just lots of noise around those trends. And it's really hard for me to remind myself, at least, that generally they are noise. It's hard to not experience every down wiggle and up wiggle as like this incredible or cataclysmic thing. And it's all the like, do our retention numbers look weird this week? Does customer acquisition look soft this week? Are CPAs too high this week? Are we backlogged on fulfilling orders? All those kinds of things. It's hard to keep distance from them and just think like, okay, this is all just sort of random noise variation. How about hiring? Because it seems like you hadn't done that up to the point when you started. And then you just rolled through some of your friends that you hired. Was that a difficult part? And if so, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think our team's super strong today. But I also think it's interesting, like, what are these direct brand orgs supposed to be? Because Ben came from Harry's, which had like a 200-person team. And Warby had that and Casper had that. And we kind of went smaller with that. And I think it's still something people are sussing out and there's different views. Are these supposed to be really big orgs or large orgs? Like this was a brand under P&G or something. Or are these supposed to be tighter ships? And I kind of view towards the latter because the goal is to pass the create as much value for the consumer. And if you can get it done leaner and meaner, you can do that. Again, I'm trying to point, you're saying even sometimes looking at the weekly customer retention or whatnot. I want to be as open as we can to anyone who's listening. It sounds like basically you've worked hard, you've got it to this point, but there really still hasn't been any really negative things that have happened since you started. The only reason I bring it up, I know it's not always easy to talk about. It's just, I find like most people listen. If they hear your story, they're like, dude, it was so easy for him. Like he's Superman. He was able to do everything well. And then I don't want everyone to have that impression of like how easy it is. No, I mean, look, this sent me, maybe I should have been there beforehand, but I mean, this was probably like a year into Hubble my first trip to a psychiatrist, without getting into every background specific, um, points of massive anxiety that really felt kind of out of control and overwhelming for me. And a lot of thought about how you sort of become more resilient over time so that you can kind of weather the bumps a lot, bumps in the road better with less sort of sturm and drain or whatever. I'm just trying to put myself in your position because I'm not sure I'm still totally understanding. I mean, I feel like if I was in your position, I'm like under 30, I'm having to deal with maybe a 30 person team. And I am being a star of a commercial like yourself that I could get a little worrisome. Is everything going to work out or whatnot? Is that what you're saying happened or am I missing something? Yeah, but maybe it doesn't sound like it should. Maybe I should just be like jubilant every day. But no, I just don't want to give the impression at all that I think it can be different sort of outside view are things going well here for this company for this person yada yada and then just sort of the subjective experience of that and just a lot of stuff happening over all at once that maybe probably the biggest feeling was just overwhelmed at different points kind of overwhelmed and can i discharge all my responsibilities here kind of keep pace with it and that's been better lately but especially like first year after launch that was you know really very dominant feeling And again, I'm putting myself in your position. I mean, I could imagine because that's what I was asking about hiring because you hadn't done that before. So I could believe that that could be a difficult thing or even like putting in the systems in place and making sure you're putting in the right systems. I mean, having self-doubt about that. I think anyone listening would have that issue. Yeah, the biggest thing by far, it's less the operational stuff. And it's more like you don't know what this thing's going to be. And every point along the way, it feels like it's going to stall out. And that's as far as it's going to go. And it always feels that way. It's not like anybody told us 
when we launched that we'd get to XYZ scale or that there was any guarantee of that. Every step on that path, I thought it was going to be, you know, I didn't think we'd get any further. I just thought it would stall. And so is that the point that you started seeing somebody to talk about these issues? Yeah, exactly. And I think particularly, you know, anxiety among founders seems like an incredibly common thing. I think it's something that should be talked about more because it's natural that it's an experience that would make one anxious. You're trying to accomplish more years of work in a shorter period of time. And so that's like, maybe I'm being too easy on myself and other founders, but it seems natural that be sort of an anxiety producing experience. No, I don't think so at all. And especially, like I said, again, I want to point back to your age. It's like, if you're a go-getter and this is your first company and you want to see it succeed and then you get this money and then you got to, if it was only like your own money, I think it's like less worrisome. But when you start bringing on other people's money and having to prove that they made the right choice, I could see a lot of anxiety. Yeah, that's right. You feel an incredible sense of responsibility. These people believed in you and you want to make good on that. So how have you like gotten better at dealing with that? I think the biggest thing that happens over time is you realize you start building up scar tissue, which is good and bad, but also you just start being able to say like, okay, I freaked out X, Y, Z times before <laughs> and it's been fine those times. And so this could be the big one, but it hasn't been the other time. So maybe I should just try to take a breath here, but also still lots of times I feel anxious. It gets better over time. You know, it's not like you're a superhero one day. I've felt that way many a times as far as like I'd like the roller coaster that all the entrepreneurs talk about. I feel like as you kind of get older, the ups and downs get smaller because you learn more, you know? So if something bad happens that day, I'm like, I'm going to be okay. It's not that big of a deal. I've been through that, like you said. Yeah, totally. And it's interesting when I'm talking with other folks about their businesses, I really get to see it because it's like first time founder will get freaked out about something totally reasonably. And I'll talk with them about it. And I'll be like, oh yeah, I've seen that thing before. That'll be fine. It's not a big deal. And you can kind of see that a bit. It's a little bit harder to see in your own experience, partly because it's your own experience and whatever we're all, or I'm at least myopic that way, I guess. But also just because you're not dealing with the same pain points you were dealing with two years ago. And so hopefully you're tougher and better and more resilient, but the things you're dealing with are bigger and more intimidating and yada yada. And so they kind of both scale at the same time. What if you can make your work take less work? You can with Captera. Captera helps you find the right software for your needs fast, so you can get back to business even faster. Compare thousands of software options, read reviews, and instantly narrow your favorites. You'll have more time in no time. Find the right software right now at captera.com forward slash millionaire. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 1 million reviews of real products from real software users. Discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 categories of software, everything from project management to CRMs to email marketing to yoga studio management software. Well, just basically any category you can think of, they have covered. I used Captera to check the top audio editing software and web conferencing software to make sure we're using the best products for editing and recording this podcast. So no matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com slash millionaire for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. captera.com slash millionaire. Captera, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash millionaire. Captera. 
Software selection simplified. So what are some of those things that you said you talked to other founders about that you think that they need to not freak out about as much? Again, they're probably still going to, but hopefully anyone who's listening can learn. The marketing is the lifeblood of these businesses. And so it feels really awful. The first time you hit a really rough patch on customer acquisition or you launch and you're not hitting your numbers and you have to grind your way down to your target or you launch a new product and the new product's a total flop and nobody wants that. These things all feel like real bad. How about for you? I mean, did that happen right when you started Hubble Contacts at all? Yeah, customer acquisition was good at the gate. But yeah, I mean, there was a patch probably like three or four months in where we were really stalling and we hadn't had that before. And I was like, okay, maybe this is it. I remember talking with, uh, with someone on my team to say like, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe this is as far as we go. And it was a fun three month ride. Not that it was gonna go out of business the next day, just maybe that was the, for the scale it could achieve. And just so people understand a little bit more, can you give us a little bit more detail on that? Like when you say stalling, were your same Facebook ads not working as well? The same Facebook ad, we were getting fewer customers for more dollars with the same ads. Okay. How much were you paying with these dollars? I mean, imagine it's not like you got a $100 ad budget. Yeah, no, you're spending several hundred thousand dollars a month at that point. Right. That's what I'm saying. I can understand the anxiety if it's working at first. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're spending that same amount, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it costs twice as much to get a customer, then that's a big issue. That is the central terror of all direct brands. And with your company, as far as understand that with marketing seems like your forte, that's what kind of grew your business, right? Mm -hmm. What suggestions do you have for other business owners, whether they're dealing with social media or any other suggestions for like customer acquisition? Because again, this seems like what you're really, really good at. So hopefully you can help other people with it. Yeah, I still think Facebook, love them or not, I think Facebook and Instagram are still the dominant game in town. And I think everybody wants to get diversified on their marketing budget. And I totally get why. But you have to be realistic about what's working for you and not. And don't try to convince yourself that marketing spend that maybe doesn't have that return um, is working for you. It's good to say you want to be diversified. It's good to try to get diversified. But be realistic if at the end of all that, you're spending some marketing dollars with no return at all. That's not diversified. That just means you have some part of your marketing budget that's working and another part that you're just kind of incinerating. So it seems like your specialty, again, was the Instagram, Facebook in the beginning. And then I alluded to seeing you on a commercial. How did TV work for you? TV works. There's scale in TV. Generally, I think TV works at something of a premium to Facebook and Instagram, but it works. Is that just because you were on it? <laughs> Take that as a yes. No, I do think it was interesting that you even brought it up in the beginning. I think when the founder comes on and you look like just a regular guy, not to say that you are just, but you know, it's like, okay, I can kind of connect or relate with them. Totally. Look at how many brands are running founder spots. There's a reason. It's an effective creative. Yeah. I mean, I've always thought that even with my podcast ads or anything, if like, if the founder just comes on and talks for a few minutes or on the ad versus like me doing that read, I feel like, Hey, I'm the founder of this. This is why I started it, whatever. I just feel like those automatically, I mean, I connect with them more because I'm like, I, now I've listened to the actual guy. And I imagine if anyone's listening to this podcast interview now, hopefully, you know, they'll at least look into your company or like kind of understand they're like, okay, I've heard that guy. He sounds like a real dude who tells a story. Yeah. You want to get it from the horse's mouth. Yeah. So. Over this three years, did you think you'd grow to the size that you are today? No, <laughs> I'm always a pessimist. Right. The forever pessimist. Is that because you're a lawyer? I try to be realistic about things and most startups don't work. So if your company's in the category startup, your assumption should be it probably won't work. I'm with you too. I'm a very, very positive person in general, but I try to be a quote unquote as realistic as possible. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm being glib. I think you need to have some sort of positive energy to get out, out of bed every day and do stuff. But I do think it's worth being realistic. Like you want to do something new, it probably will fail. And that's okay. Yeah. And it's perfect to have, if you were a founder, I mean, is Ben the exact same way as you or does he think different? Yeah. 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 We're very similar on this. Okay. Yeah. If you keep looking at what's the worst that can happen, that's actually a good thing because then you're like, okay, obviously if you have that mindset and then you can look at the positive from there, I just think it's smart to look at it the way that you do as well. Yeah. It's unpleasant. Right. I think it's our job. So three years in, you told us you're 33 countries and how many employees again? 20 something employees. I'm not sure exactly. How about revenue? And not allowed to share. Okay. That's why I just try to, I'm like, even employees or countries or whatever subscriptions, that helps us get a general idea of size. But I guess what I was alluding to there is like, what do you expect here for the next five or 10 years as far as growth? If you can give us what you think that would be. Look, I think we're continuing to grow at a healthy clip and hopefully lots of positive runway ahead of us. Our forecasts are always wrong. So, <laughs> in a good so way or, gonna... or a negative way? Both. Depends. Right. Which I guess you want to be too high half the time and too low half the time. So I guess that just means accurate-ish. So I'm not going to start taking putting stock in them now. And over this three years of growth, I mean, how has your role changed as a company founder? We still like to be pretty in the weeds. I think the weeds are where things happen. And it's tempting to put distance between you and the details. But it goes back to sort of the tedious work of, of researching an idea, or digging into an idea. Most of the stuff that needs to get done isn't terribly glamorous. That's fine. That's our job. And it's for your like team, the size of it. I mean, do you all, all go to one location in New York every day or do you have some people who work from home or how's that work? We're a mix and we're relatively flexible on policy there. Because I'm trying to get a feel for like how to run a company this quickly, this size. If you have a flexible, if there's systems that you have in place that work well for people in your company, if they're not all in one location. Because again, I think it more in the future, that's what more businesses are going to become, not being in the same actual place. Look, all the same stuff that you'd expect. Slack is great. The Gmail and Google Docs are great. We live in a period with lots of really great collaborative tools, and a lot of them are free or near free. And so that's awesome. Any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening and uh, has their own business here, Jesse? You just got to do it all one day at a time. With 2020 vision? <laughs> See what I did there. All right. Well, thank you, Jesse, for joining us. If anyone wants to say thank you for doing this podcast episode, is there a best way for them to reach out and say thank you? Yeah, they just message me on LinkedIn. All right. And Jesse Horowitz will have his info in the episode notes. So thank you for joining us, Jesse. Thank you. Hey there, Millionaire Interview listener. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, we would really appreciate a five-star review. It helps other listeners find the show so they can enjoy it, just like you. And if you're looking for more episodes that are in the product niche, then try episode 11 with Bottle Breacher founder Eli Crane, or episode 13 with Sammy of BlackSox.com, or try episode 18 with Yak Gear founder Bill Bragman. As always, thanks again for tuning in and have a great day. Join the club by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon to help support the show.